So let's get Captain Obvious out of the way. Uh, The Lord apparently thought it would be amusing if I preached with the uh, verbal likeness of Wolfman Jack this morning. It is just a cold. I I took a COVID test even this morning. It's negative, so it's just going to sound funny. It's cozy up here. I like this. They would never let me up here for the, uh, the music tonight, but... Um, we're going to be in Isaiah 9, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab, their, grab your Bibles and turn there. I've got my water, throat lozenges, so I should be able to nurse my way through this. Uh, we're, we're working through uh, an Advent series, as Kenny mentioned at the outset of the service, um, going through this prophecy in Isaiah 9 and considering these four names that are prophetically appri- applied to Christ. Uh, Last Sunday was Wonderful Counselor, and Fred Sanders gave us a great exposition and application of that, and we'll be uh, be looking at the second name for Jesus here in Isaiah 9. We'll pick it up in verse 6. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So really, in a nutshell, uh, these verses give the answer to all the greatest needs, right? These four titles applied to Jesus answer all the greatest needs, all the greatest questions. Today, it's our privilege to zero in on the term mighty God, this name or title that's, that's prophetically applied uh, to Jesus. In Isaiah's context, what's going on, and, and Fred mentioned this a little bit last week, is that, that King Ahaz has been resting his hope in Assyria rather than, rather than God. And uh, that, that hope ultimately backfires. And that results in a people walking in darkness. And, and you see that at the end of chapter 8, and then very famously in chapter 9, verse 2, uh, that opens saying the people who walked in darkness are now going to see a great light. But it's not just Isaiah's uh, Day. And it's not just Judah, the southern kingdom in Israel, that is going to need a mighty deliverer. Uh, as Kenny helpfully pointed out by, by appealing to Genesis 3 at the, start of the, at the start of the message or the start of the service, God's bringing his redeemer king not just to restore Israel, but to restore Edenic peace to the entire earth, to all peoples. So the person who fulfills this prophecy is the pivot person of all of human history. And as Fred said last week, I thought very helpfully, it is important that we get him into our story, but it's dramatically more important that we get ourselves into his story, right? Between the two, our story is the little s, and his is the capital one. So we need to understand what it means to be a part of the story of his glory. So what is this title, Mighty God? What does it mean? Well, I don't know if you guys read the... uh, the Grace Wire sermon preps when they come out. I find them very helpful. I, I think Kenny mostly writes them, and maybe Walt does sometimes as well. 
great preparation for uh, worship on Sunday. Not this past week, but a couple of weeks ago, when they were introducing the, uh, the Advent series, there, each of these names had a, uh, like a bullet point or a sentence associated with it, and I thought it was a good place to start. Here's what it said. Mighty God points to the sovereign power of Jesus. He will be divinely strong and powerful to accomplish all of God's perfect plan. And that's amazing news for those who are weak. It's a really good, helpful place to start. This title, Mighty God, is, it's used in other places uh, throughout the scriptures for Yahweh himself. So if you're, you're here in Isaiah 9, flip maybe one page over to Isaiah 10. I'll just give you one example. Isaiah 10, uh, picking it up in verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, that's Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. So this is a, this is a divine title, right? And in Isaiah 9, this divine title is being applied prophetically to this child that's going to be going to be born some 700 years from the point at which the prophecy was made. It evokes divine power, and, and, and we've been in the, the Gospel of Luke uh, recently leading up to our Advent series, and, and you've seen Jesus' divine power on display when he cast out demons and when he miraculously heals sickness, and we're going to see it when we resume the series, in, uh, even in resurrection, resurrecting people from the dead. So Isaiah is prophetically preparing the way Uh, for the reception of Jesus as this God-man, right, in the fullness of time, this one who is a child to be born and also mighty God. Now, this this truth about the the, the deity, the mightiness of Jesus is confirmed all over the New Testament. I'm actually uh, teaching Christology in one of my classes at this point in the semester, and as my students are getting ready for their exam, um, we, we cover the deity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus in detail. But one of the things I tell them is, I know, right, you cram for an exam, um, it's going to go in your short-term memory, and then days or certainly weeks after you take the exam, you're going to forget much of what you studied. So here's what I remind them, you know, maybe, maybe five months from now or five years from now, you'll have an opportunity to talk to someone who is an unbeliever and wants to know why you think that Jesus was more than just human, right? Most people are willing to grant the humanity and perhaps even the decency of Jesus, but why do you people think that he's the God-man? And I tell my students, if you can tuck away in your long-term memory three chapter ones in the New Testament, there's way more than just this, but if you can remember three chapter ones, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and they're willing to talk about who Jesus is from the pages of Scripture with you, they'll have, you'll have plenty to talk about, right? You don't remember, you don't sleep with your course pack under your pillow and do your devotionals from your, from your course pack. You don't remember all that. If you remember those three chapter ones, you'll have plenty to say. So let's just look at one of those, just for a minute. Flip over to Hebrews chapter one. We could do more, but I think this will suffice. So in Hebrews chapter one, uh, beginning in verse one, and I'll just read a few verses, uh, we read as follows. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the author of Hebrews tells us that, that uh, God the Son in the incarnate uh, state is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And then he goes on for the remainder of the chapter to elaborate on his superiority to angels in which he makes the statement in verse six that God commands his angels to worship Jesus Christ, the incarnate son. We know that the only person who appropriately receives worship in the Bible is God. And when God the Father commands that God the incarnate son be worshiped, that's a, that's a very clear and direct indication of the deity of Jesus, isn't it? So in all that to say, in, in Isaiah's day, they were still waiting for this ideal king, this child to be born who would also be mighty God to come. But in Christ, we now, looking back, we have received him. And it is absolutely the case that he will ultimately crush his foes. Maybe you remember um, from 1 John 3, this, this statement that says the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, right? He's going to crush his foes. But he does so in something of a twist, doesn't he? This child who will ultimately crush his, his foes, we come to find exerts his might in what might be called some unexpected ways, right? And expectations are interesting things, aren't they? They can tell us a lot about ourselves. In this case, our expectations concerning deliverance can tell us who we think we are, what we think our core problem is, what we think we need. There's a long history of fallen humanity deflecting on the issue of the core need, wanting to see that problem outside of ourselves rather than having something to do with ourselves. Uh, Eve, you'll recall, blamed the snake. Adam blamed Eve and God. And on and on it goes down to the present. So by the time that Jesus is actually on the scene, there were many of his contemporaries thinking, if only we could get rid of the Roman occupiers, right? If only we could get them, then everything will be okay. You may recall that um, after the baptism of Jesus, it's, interesting, it's an interesting intersection. He, he's led by the Holy Spirit following his baptism into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And apparently urgently so, because Mark's gospel says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's kind of hard not to imagine, right? If, if there were onlookers uh, departing the baptism and heading for the wilderness, if there were onlookers who had this sort of expectation, right, that Jesus is, is, is going to rescue from the Romans, if that's what he's going to do, it'd be hard to imagine that, that those onlookers might not be disappointed a little bit in their expectations when they see him head in the direction of the wilderness and not leading a small army on Jerusalem, right? You might think, wrong way, wrong enemies. Certainly it wasn't the expected flex of power that they were looking for. Well, what about you? 
And what about me? Where might you be wrestling with expectations that Jesus' exercise of power needs to take on a certain form? To put it differently, what are your if-onlys? What are the places where you're tempted to think if only God would give them this or give me that, everything would be okay? See, if we've misidentified our core need, then even if God were to give us our if-onlys, it would only be a matter of time before we've moved on to the next one. You ever catch yourself thinking that way? Only X. And then maybe God grants X. It's not long before the discontent rises again. And I, I didn't really mean if only X, I meant if only Y. You know, and I didn't mean if only Y, if only, if only Z. So Jesus' manner of provision as mighty God shows how mistaken we can be about our deepest needs, right? Because in his greatest work over our greatest problem, Jesus, who has sovereign power, did not exert his sovereign power in an overwhelming frontal assault against the gates of hell. Rather, he took on a human nature that was capable of suffering the penalty for sin. And he came to earth as a humble and vulnerable infant to run the race that we've all failed to run and then to lay down his life in sacrificial offering. And he did that by absorbing and draining the powers of sin and death and hell to their very last drop. So Jesus is both meek and mighty, isn't he? In his infancy, he's both a little one dependent on nourishment from his mother Mary. And as we saw in Hebrews 1 a moment ago, he is also simultaneously upholding the universe by the word of his power. In Revelation 5, he is the conquering lion who conquers in Revelation 5 as the lamb standing as though it had been slain. Well, which is it? The answer is yes, <laughs> right? This, is, this majestic mystery is why the angels were praising God in that field outside of Bethlehem in Luke 2. And it's why commentator John Oswalt said of our passage in Isaiah 9, this king will have God's true might about him, power so great that it can absorb all the evil which can be hurled at, at it until none is left to hurl. Now, our great temptation is to look into that manger or even to look on that cross and go, that's not mighty. Doesn't look like victory. Uh, Kenny... Uh, helped me significantly this week. He pointed me to a uh, sermon by, by Charles Spurgeon on this passage in Isaiah 9, where he took up this theme very helpfully. And I'm going to quote it at a little bit, a little bit of length. Um, sometimes when you meet your match, you just, you know, instead of, uh, what's, the old, what's the old saying? If you can't beat them, join them. So we'll, uh, we'll let Charles Spurgeon help us out here. Very helpful, I think. He says, this child born... This son given came into the world to enter the list, that means to go to combat, against sin. For 30 years and upwards, he had to struggle and wrestle against temptations more numerous and more terrible than man had ever known before. Adam fell when but a woman tempted him. Eve fell when but a serpent offered fruit to her. 
But Christ, the second Adam, stood invulnerable against the shafts, or all the shafts of Satan. Though tempted, uh, he was in all points, like, like as we are. Not one arrow out of the quiver of hell was spared. The whole were shot against him. Every arrow was aimed against him with all the might of Satan's archers. And that is not little. And yet, without sin or taint of sin, more than conqueror, he stood. Foot to foot with Satan in the solitude of the wilderness, hand to hand with him on the top of the pinnacle of the temple, side by side with him in the midst of a busy crowd, yet ever more than conqueror. He gave him battle wherever the adversary willed to meet him. And at last, when Satan gathered up all his might and seized the Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane, and crushed him till he sweat as it were great drops of blood. Then when the Savior said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt, the tempter was repulsed. And then just one more, a little bit further on, one more bit. He goes on to say, we know also that Christ proved himself to be mighty God from the fact that at last all the sins of all his people were gathered upon his shoulders and he bare them in his own body on the tree. The heart of Christ became like a reservoir in the midst of mountains. All the tributary streams of iniquity and every drop of the sins of his people ran down and gathered into one vast lake, deep as hell and shoreless as eternity. All these met, as it were, in Christ's heart, and yet he endured them all. At length, he put the sins of his people to a public execution. They are dead. They have ceased to be. And if they be sought for, they shall not be found anymore forever. Certainly, if this be true, he is the mighty God indeed. And then when Kenny sent me that excerpt, he added this. I love the image of Jesus putting the sins of his people to a public execution. It's like at the cross, Jesus dove on the grenade of all our sin and took all its shrapnel so that none could fly out and hit us. Well, those are two pretty good theologians, aren't they? And what, they, what they're communicating is that Jesus, in his mightiness, was strong to absorb the blow of sin and to drain the power of hell. So he is mighty God. And yet his manner of being mighty God in his first coming shows not only who he is, but what it is that we ultimately need. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the word of, cross is the, word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing because it, it looks weak, right? It doesn't look wise or, or strong, and yet it is this manner of exertion of Christ's great power that defeats our greatest foe. So Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians to say, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That makes me very thankful that God did not settle for meeting the expectations of our if-onlys if he only answered those prayers and not this need. It would be too small a thing. And that's the main point of our message today. But maybe, and, and certainly understandably, maybe some are wondering if he is mighty, why does it still hurt sometimes? Why does life still hurt? 
Well, as I mentioned at Biola, where I have my day job, I'm at that point of the semester where in one class, I'm teaching on the person and work of Jesus, uh, the atonement, the atoning work of Jesus. In my other class, or one of my other classes, I'm teaching on the doctrine of eschatology, and most recently, this week in particular, the doctrine of hell. It's an interesting intersection, isn't it, to be thinking about Christology and the doctrine of hell uh, at the same time. I think that gives us something important uh, to consider. I I like to point out uh, when we're doing that in class that the work of Christ is glorious to the same degree that the horrors of hell are I guess we could say horrible, right? There's a proportionality, in other words, between the two. So think about it like this. It shows the interconnection of doctrine, doesn't it? If, if we have, if we have a, a light, a little view of hell, we're also going to have a very small view of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. If hell is a little deal of small consequence, if hell is a minor headache, then Jesus is, take two aspirin and call me in the morning. On the other hand, if we know, right, so so this is a a way in which the the horrors of hell help us see something about the majesty of Jesus. If hell is the terrifying place that the scriptures describe it to be for those who die in unrepentance, then Jesus, not only must hell be uh, unfathomably horrible, but Jesus must be unfathomably glorious difficult to conceive of who he was and what he accomplished on that cross. He who swallows in a finite period of time what would take any of the rest of us an eternity to endure. There must be some beautiful majesty going on in that person and in that work. So with that in mind, and as long as we're thinking about if onlys, let's try this one out, okay? Against the backdrop of, of, of coming to church, recognizing that some of you are bringing in painful circumstances and you wanna know why it still hurts. If only we could see the exquisite costliness of Christ's sacrifice for what it is. If only we could see it for wisdom and not foolishness, for victory, not defeat, for mightiness and not weakness. If only we could see that he did all that he did for us, as Romans 5.8 indicates, while we were yet sinners and his enemies, then maybe we would find that we experience a little bit of change, whether the circumstances that sometimes grieve us get changed or not. There is, it's not, there's a deeper work, isn't there, that God is interested in. And the good news is that you can begin to do that today. If you've never done that before, you can begin to behold that glory today. If you've done that before, you can continue to grow in that. My prayer this week has been particularly for those who have never done this, that God would give you eyes to see this morning, that today would be the day of salvation. And if, if something we've said raises even questions and curiosities, please 
please, please don't leave without talking to someone, whether an usher or Kenny or myself or somebody in the row beside you. We'd love to talk and answer questions and address concerns and talk about Jesus and your pain and all that goes with that. But if you're a longtime believer, you know that this is why we give ourselves to scripture and prayer on a regular basis. It's why we gather at church weekly to stir up one another's faith by way of reminder. The point is not that our faith is perfect or mighty. Sometimes our faith falters significantly, doesn't it? The point is that the one on whom our faith lays hold is mighty, even though we are not. So what all that means for your current hurt, whatever you brought with you this morning, is that he will erase it all at a time of his ordained choosing. You know that day's already planned? It's already planned. And he has guaranteed that by enduring and absorbing the source of all of its poison. But if we could begin, like Mary in Luke 2, to treasure and ponder all of these things about Jesus, then not only has he promised to undo all the pain eventually in the future, but he will also give context and perspective to it now as our great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12. I want to elaborate on that just a little bit from a person who understood pain and the beauty of Jesus. So this is Paul. I'll pick it up in verse 8 in just a second, and I'll sip while you flip. Ah. This is Paul discussing uh, his, his thorn in the flesh. I'll pick it up in verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, so uh, to return to the obvious, pain hurts, right? And no one is glad for it in itself. But Paul's point in this passage is that despite that fact, particularly because of the work of Christ, God's character has conclusively shown that he can be trusted for what he does with our pain. What the enemies of God mean for evil, God always purposes for God. And insofar as God puts us into situations where we have to recline because of our weaknesses on Christ, he is forcing us to rest on the greatest strength of all. And if he's given us that gift, and if he did that when we were still his enemies, then you can trust him. You can even increase contentment in him on the unexpected pathways by which he sometimes leads us home. Well, maybe some of you are wondering about that. Perhaps others are wondering this. The word can land on, based on what you bring in here, the word can land on people in different ways, can't it? Maybe some are not so much wondering about Jesus and their pain. Maybe they're wondering about our own faltering in sin. Maybe the, maybe the pondering is, if he's mighty God and he is going to crush sin 
and I'm still fumbling around in it, what hope is there for me? Why would he do anything other than crush me? How could there be hope that he would receive me? Well, if that's you, recall that the purpose of his stooping as low as he did was to rescue sinners. You might think of uh, a few weeks back, uh, Eric preached this, uh, this passage in Luke 5 on Jesus' summons of Levi to be one of his disciples, right? Tax collectors and sinners Jesus hangs out with. Jesus loves to forgive sinners. In fact, that's the only kind of person he saves. So if you feel the weight of your sin this morning, I want you to know, if, if, you, if you have any kind of sense of being pricked in conscience about your sin, that is mercy. That that, that, hasn't, that that hasn't seared over, that you're not numb to that. That's a mercy from the Lord. But what you do next is critical because you can run from Jesus or you can run to him. And I want to encourage you in the next few minutes to do the second one. Jesus is not surprised and he is not repulsed by the fact that you need a savior. Your sin does not repel him. In fact, he's the one who initiated the movement towards you in the first place. So um, Dane Ortland wrote a book last year entitled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. It is excellent. Love that book. Highly recommend it to be a good Christmas present to give to someone or even yourself. In one of his chapters, he, he addresses this concern beautifully. And he uses John 6:37 as ground zero for an imaginary dialogue that represents the heart of Christ towards sinners who are anxious and ashamed about their sin. So John 6:37, Jesus says, "All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out." Now, I want you to lean into this especially if you're here today and in the back of your mind, maybe with words you were not prepared to share with anyone, you feel like you've made yourself too unclean for Jesus, okay? It's imagined, but it's, I think it's bona fide. No, wait, we say cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know. He responds, you know most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside me that is hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help. But the burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others. They're ultimately directed against you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. 
Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Friend, that's how Jesus loves to display his might by serving sinners with it. And it's not as though he was into that sort of thing in the past, but has moved on from it in the present, right? In Hebrews 7.25, we're reminded that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what he's doing right now. He did what he did in the past, but right now what he's doing today is interceding. He lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. In other words, repentant sinners progress day by day, not just on the back of our prayers to him, but on the strong back of his mighty intercession for us even now. Isn't that good news? Isn't that comforting to know that Jesus is making intercession for us even as we speak and that he hasn't finished with us even in the moments we think, how could he not be? How could he not be finished with me? And in the end, he will usher in the cosmic peace that bows every knee everywhere to his great name. But that sermon is two Sundays from now on the Prince of Peace. So we'll save it. Well, friends, maybe you came in here today wondering about all kinds of things. I hope we've added one more thing to add to your list of wonderings on your way out. Wonder over just how far the mighty God came in the person of Christ for you. Wonder over how much he absorbed and withstood for you. And in response, may we exalt him this week and throughout the Advent season as the center of all our stories. Let's pray to that end. Mighty God, we give you praise that you did not merely settle for giving us what we thought we needed and felt that we wanted, that you didn't stop at our if-onlys, but you exerted your sovereign power in ways that to us were massively counterintuitive to meet our deepest need. Thank you for your strength, Lord Jesus, for your humility, for your sacrifice. May you be exalted in our hearts, our minds, our thoughts as we go from this place today, as we come back this evening, as we lean into the Advent season in the weeks ahead. We pray these things in your strong and mighty name. Amen.